I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. As you do, I'll apologize a bit for my uh, voice. I'm thoroughly on the mend now, but uh, Thursday, after about a four-day stretch of not feeling too good in my throat and so forth, I decided, well, I guess I'll go to the doctor. Went in there, and they said, well, by the way, you have strep throat. So we'll go ahead and give you, we can give you that little steroid shot. I don't know if anybody else out here has had the steroid shot lately. They give you that thing, and I felt a little weird kind of in my legs for the rest of the day. And then lay down at, you know, 1030 at night. We're like, okay, let's lay down for bedtime. 1230, boom, I'm awake, baby. (laughs) And I was wide awake until 430 in the morning. So if any of you got emails that I sent at 3 in the morning on uh, Friday morning, that's, uh, that's what I was doing. I was trying to be productive with all that time. Uh, but hopefully we'll make it through our time today looking at, at God's Word. I do feel reasonably improved. We're going to take a look at Exodus chapter uh, 12. Last week we looked and really summarized uh, God's bringing of the plagues upon Uh, the people of Egypt, as he was dealing with them, as he was dealing with Pharaoh's prideful persistence against him. We saw God's sovereign power and judgment and will. And we even said last week that, in a sense, it's a build-up to this week. We get to hear the message that, again, displays God's judgment and power, but also displays God's abundant grace, as we're going to see in these verses. As God passes over His people passes over those who put their trust in Him. That He displays in in neon lights, if you will, or at least in blood-stained doorways, the work of His grace and His mercy that we too today can find shelter in, can find protection in, recognizing that God is a holy God and He's a just God, but also brings tremendous mercy to us. I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. We'll take a look at a few verses at the end of the passage. Let me just say first that Exodus 11 is a summary of this final plague that's declared upon the Egyptians. And once again, despite this threat, despite the nine other plagues, despite this threat that all the firstborn of the land will be taken, Pharaoh stands in prideful opposition to God. And God moves forward with this act of judgment. And yet we see in these verses, I'll read some of them for you in a minute, but let me highlight Exodus 11, verse 7 says, But not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And then once again, before we get to these verses in chapter 12, the first 20 or so verses give a description of this offering that would be offered that the people would mark their doorway with as God passes over to receive his protection. And it reminds us in verse 5 of Exodus 12 that the lamb that will be offered should be free of blemish. And then turn with me and I invite you to stand as we read God's word. Let me read aloud and you along with me silently, Exodus 12, verses 21 through 28, which in a sense summarizes all that's taking place in these chapters 11 and 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. 
Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood that's in the basin. A hyssop was like a, a, a brush or a, maybe a, a broom. And touch the lintel, that would be the beam above the door. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. The people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. You may be seated. And let's pray again. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would uh, take your word. And we praise you today for this word that declares in such bold display for us your mercy to us through an atoning sacrifice. Oh, Lord, would you take and impress that upon our hearts today that we might be transformed by the glorious things that you are doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I read the story about a farmer some years ago who had many, many fields of grain that he harvested in Northern California. In those days, the trains would pass by and he had a track that ran by the edge of his land and many of the trains were fueled by coal and by wood and occasionally a spark would fly out of the top of the smokestack on the train. From time to time, those sparks would light the fields around on fire if things were dry and it was indeed a dry season that year. This farmer kept watch looked out over his fields and watched the trains each day. One night he was awakened from his sleep, from his slumber, to see what he had feared most. Off in the distance, off towards where the tracks came across his land, he saw a smoke pillar beginning to rise and a faint flame. And he barely had enough time in that dry climate to build a fire break around his own house before the rush of flames came on past and consumed nearly all of his crops. The next day, he went out into the fields to survey all that had happened, the devastation, and of course he was dejected as he stood there looking for some sign of hope. He saw even at his feet that one of his hens, his chicken, had been charred and sacrificed in this inferno that rushed past. And he stood and he looked around, wondering what could be some hope in this situation. Then he began to hear this noise, a faint noise that seemed to be coming from around his feet. He took his foot and kicked over the carcass of this hen that was laying there. And underneath were five Perfectly protected little chicks that had been sheltered 
by the sacrifice of their mother. Look at these verses today. We see a display of a sacrifice of the greatest proportion for us. And as we look at these verses, we should rightly be immediately looking forward to the work of Christ. Forward to one who comes as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. As we see this sacrifice offered to put blood over the doorpost as well, we should see the beauty of the sacrifice offered to us and our opportunity to find shelter, to find protection, to find life and joy in the shelter of the gospel of the blood that Christ has shed for us. If you want to follow along in your bulletin, I think the main idea in these verses is Simply this, it's a call for us to exercise faith. That as we exercise faith in God's salvation, we can escape His judgment through a sacrifice. This message redounds today. It's the same message that was declared and demonstrated to those in Exodus. So we look at these verses, though, and as we think about this idea of Christ coming into the world laying down his life, a sacrifice offered by sin, this idea that God judges in some way. We might have one of at least three responses I can think of today towards that message. Some might be here, and you've heard the message for a while, and would presume upon it that maybe because I've heard it, because I'm familiar with it, then it must sort of apply to me by de facto. Or maybe we grew up in a a family or we grow up in this southern culture where this message is prevalent about Jesus. And so it, it must somehow apply to me. These verses remind us that the Egyptians had to go out and respond. They were called to mark their doors. There's a response called for to the gospel that although the gracious message of God is offered abundantly and free, we must receive it. We must engage with it personally for it to be effective for us. We see that challenge in these verses if perhaps we sit in that camp today. Uh, Others of us perhaps are perhaps pretty diligent about sort of seeking the Lord. We feel like we're pretty engaged with the Lord, but we might miss the fact here that God, when he tells the Hebrews to mark their doors and decides to pass over, He doesn't ask which one of them took their time to read their Bible that day. He doesn't ask which one of them was diligent and faithful to make sure to show up at Sunday school that week. He doesn't ask which one really gave what they needed to give to the local congregation. He's not interested in their religious performance to secure their salvation. God's interested in God's religious performance. His performance to go by and pass by His judgment. It's a reminder for us today who are here and would be tempted to put some kind of confidence, some kind of trust, maybe a little bit. I know I need Christ, but don't I also need this? Doesn't this add on a little bit to what Christ has done? These verses remind us that the sacrifice of God is a perfect covering for us. Certainly desires a response in our life. But we don't earn anything with the Lord by it. Well, that's the second 
category that might be here, second mindset. A third one for us might be those who are here and we look at this sacrifice and we feel like there's absolutely no way that we could be worthy of it. It's not that we presume upon it. It's not that we think we could add to it. You say, uh, Pastor, you don't know my life. You don't know the kind of things I did in my business dealings this last week or a few years ago. You don't know the affair I've had. You don't know the temptations I'm dealing with. You don't know the bitterness and forgiveness that are wrapped up in my heart. You don't know me. How can you possibly suggest that the Lord could pass over me? There's no way that could happen. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. As we look at these verses, we see a declaration that God indeed knows all about his people. He knows all that's going on us. And if we would simply trust in the sacrifice offered for us, he will indeed pass by. He will demonstrate his love for us in that way by moving on and withholding his judgment from us. Three ways we see this in these verses today. And sometimes when we've got you know, three points in a message. Preachers love to have three points, I know. Sometimes they're kind of unrelated to each other. They sort of stand on their own. Today I want us to understand these are really building blocks. Well, the first one's going to be a foundation, and we're going to build on that. Then the final one, they're going to stack on top of each other. First one is this that we see in these verses. And that's just this message I've already been talking about, but I want you to see it here in the verses, is that God saves us. Through a sacrifice. That's how he does it. That's how he chooses to bring his salvation. Again, we didn't read specifically the first part of chapter 12. But if you look at verse 5, it gives this interesting description. Not, they're supposed to pick out a lamb. They're supposed to pick out something to sacrifice. But not just any one will do. It says in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. So we think about these Verses, if you want to, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is about in the middle of your Bible, probably after Psalms, but before the New Testament. And Isaiah declares this as we think about this idea of atonement and this lamb offered for us. A message about Christ, about the servant of the Lord coming. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. It says, Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When the Bible says the arm of the Lord, it means His strength, His display of power. So what is that display of power? God, tell us how you're going to do this powerful work of salvation. Then it describes the Lord Jesus predicted some 700 years before He ever set foot on earth. For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Despised and rejected by men, a, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we, 
like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 12 from that same chapter. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, that he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Scriptures declare a message of atonement. It's a tough message for us to swallow. Some of us, it's become too commonplace. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't propel us back in any way. We hear about this one sacrifice for us, and we assume, oh, yeah, we've, we've sort of got that coming. Others of us, this message, if we begin to think about it, that the Son of God would have to die and be offered up for us, is very shocking, very difficult to digest. I found a dialogue between uh, one particular uh, Christian, uh, pseudo-Christian theologian and a woman who wrote into him. Let me read this. She says this. Uh, Kathleen is her name, writing into this uh, theologian of sorts, a popular one from our time. She says, overcoming the widespread Christian belief that, quote, Jesus died for my sins seems an insurmountable challenge. Preachers, liturgical rites, hymns, and religious education continue to reinforce this atonement theology. Personally and pastorally, atonement thinking creates a mire of destructive results. And I would appreciate your cogent analysis of how we might best approach this. So Kathleen's writing in, and she wants this person to figure out how we can get away from all of this crazy atonement, this bloody sort of business that doesn't seem to make sense. Listen to what this uh, theologian of sorts writes back to her. Dear Kathleen, thank you for your letter and its challenge. There's no doubt that atonement theology constitutes a deep weight on the Christian faith today. I work on the subject constantly. I like, I like that part there. He, he works on the subject constantly, sort of like it's some something a freshman tossed up in philosophy 101 class instead of the message of the scriptures proclaiming atonement for generations upon generations. Let me read on. He says this, and it's amazing how much he gets right. Listen to what he gets right and what he gets so wrong. Atonement theology brings into question the morality of God. This theology assumes that God is an external being who invades the world to heal a fallen creation. It also assumes that God enters a fallen world in the person of his son to pay for human evil on the cross. All atonement theories root in a sense of human alienation, of human powerlessness. So we develop legends about a God who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus, he says, was similarly portrayed in the New Testament as the Lamb of God. As we Christians tell the story of Jesus dying in our sins, in our liturgy, in our songs, we quite unknowingly turn God into an ogre, a deity who practices child sacrifice, a guilt-producing figure who tells us that our sinfulness is the cause of the death of Jesus. God did it to him instead of to us who deserve it. Pretty interesting how much is on target And how much is off? Listen to the final comments. Somehow, that is supposed to make it, the atonement, 
both antiseptic and worthwhile. It doesn't. I think, Kathleen, that we can and must break the power of these images. Just the fact that you are sensitive to it and offended by it is a start. Well, I don't think God's particularly interested in whether his plan of salvation is antiseptic. It's not a top concern for him for us. He certainly presents his atoning work as worthwhile, as the most worthwhile thing in the world. And if we're offended by it, and perhaps Kathleen was, we're offended by it because it declares to us how desperate our condition is and how greatly we do need that sacrifice. So let it be offensive if it's going to be offensive in that way. And if we're sensitive to it, he's concerned about Kathleen being sensitive, let us be incredibly sensitive to the glory of the work of Jesus Christ laid down for us who need it desperately. Scriptures don't just declare this message in one isolated passage in Exodus or even in Isaiah 53 that I read. It goes all the way back to the garden. You remember Adam and Eve when they sinned, they discovered they were naked and God offered up some kind of animal so that he could cover them and provide a covering. You remember Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac and God provides this one who would take the place of him. Leads us right up in to the New Testament and the work of Christ. So the question for us today is, some of us here, perhaps we need to be a little more offended by this message. We need to be a little more jarred by the reality of what God has had to do for us that we might be spared of his just judgment. We need to hear that message. Some of us are stumbling over it, and these verses invite us to move past and see the beauty of a sacrifice. There's no reason to stay back, but a reason to move forward to the Lord, which leads us to our second point. Second thing we see is that when we recognize that God offers up a sacrifice for us, then we're called to move towards it, to engage with it. Look back again at Exodus chapter 12 with me. Starting at verse 21, which we just read a few minutes ago, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch it on the doorpost and on the lintel. Verse 28 as well. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Two big things this tells me, folks. This tells me that this work of Christ is something that we have an opportunity, we have a calling to engage with. It can't just be something that's floating out there that we know about. It's got to be something that we take hold of, just as the people were required to take that brush and brush over their doorposts. So we ought to be taking the gospel and brushing it over the doorposts of our lives each day. And I'll tell you what else it tells us. It tells us this, that if we have done that, if we have put our trust in Christ, We talked this morning about an assurance of pardon. We should have the highest degree of assurance. Just as those Israelites hunkered down in their homes overnight. And this is no, please 
take out of your mind any suspicion that this is some kind of legend or some kind of idea. God passed through the land. This is a true account of what he did. He passed through and brought judgment, and those people sat safely protected in their homes overnight with their doors marked by the atoning work of Christ. So, too, today, if your trust is in Christ, whatever things would rock your life, would push you off kilter, would threaten your assurance, those things can be set aside because we sit under that perfect protection of Christ's blood today as well. What are the things we run to because we don't have assurance? If we don't believe we're protected in God's love, if we don't believe we have this eternal salvation and that it's really secure, we're going to run to the material things of this life. We're going to run to our idols of approval. We're going to run to the things that take us away from the Lord because we think we've got to find something that will give me confidence in who I am and assurance of who I am. Well, the gospel tells us we don't need anything else. The blood of Christ covers over us. We're perfectly safe and protected in it. We read this morning in our service, uh, actually uh, twice, because we read it for the children's moment, but I'll turn back to it again. Hebrews, that is a fun one to find here, uh, Lanier. Hebrews, back here in chapter 9 of Hebrews. Again, let me read these verses. Drawing these connections between what Christ has done and the Old Testament sacrifices. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, verse 11 of Hebrews 9, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, he entered once once and for all, into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? so that we might serve the living God. As we exercise faith in what Christ has done, we rightly have an eternal security that our lives can be built upon, a bedrock, a solid foundation that we can build our life and hope upon. don't have to walk in insecurity or uncertainty. Last thing we see in these verses. So we got one big building block here, point number one. Number two, next building block, we embrace that work. The third thing is really interesting that it's included in these verses. Look back with me at Exodus 12 again. Exodus 12 tells us that we have an opportunity that we're really called to regularly remember. The particular rituals, in fact, to remind ourselves of this work. It tells us in verse 24 of Exodus 12, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. Okay, let me put all the pieces together for you because hopefully you've got this. Hopefully you've seen this before. Do you know when the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus take place? Do you know when he goes in and has that upper room supper? Do you know what time frame that's in? It's in the Passover season. In fact, when Jesus takes his disciples up to the 
upper room and they have that meal. And he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood laid out for you. It's the fulfillment of this Passover. That was the Passover meal that they were enjoying that Jesus then carries over into the reality of his life and death and resurrection, the ultimate sacrifice laid down for our behalf. These Old Testament people were reminded about this ritual that they now had of having a meal and of recognizing God's Passover to repeat it again. And that's part of why we spend time on a weekly basis gathering around the table is to remind ourselves of these realities. Some of what we need to to do to grow spiritually, we're always looking for the latest bells and whistles, this new book or this gadget that's going to get me fired up spiritually. Uh, Folks, some of what we need to do to grow spiritually, in fact, the primary thing is just to remember and to come back to the things that we have learned and have embraced and push them and ask God to work them deeper down into our hearts. That's what we're doing each week as we gather at the table. We're remembering as well what Christ has done. And let me extend that just a little bit more for us. Uh, You've probably heard, if you've been around here uh, for, for a little season, you've probably heard us talk about proclaiming the gospel to ourselves. Proclaiming the gospel to ourselves. Well, what are we talking about there? What we're saying is, not only do we need, you know, once a week, a reminder to come together and worship and to remember what God has done, we need reminders day in and day out to put things in our place in our lives to remind ourselves of what Christ has done, that that's our identity, that that's our hope, and not the things of this world. One last thing you'll notice here, verses 26 and 27 of Exodus 12 that it talks about the children. It says, when their children say to you, why do we do this thing? Why do we do this thing? It's a great privilege for us as a church family, even as we saw this morning, to have so many little ones involved in our church. And part of the joy and privilege of, of remembering this for ourselves, we can't pass on what we don't get. When we remember it for ourselves, then we can pass it on to them as well, share with them the glory of what God has done. We look at these verses then. We see three big messages. Number one, that the Bible does not turn away, does not turn an eye away from the reality of a sacrifice that's needed for us. That's the message of the gospel. There is no other hope for our salvation. There is no other hope for the salvation of the world. In this work of Christ on a cross. Is it bloody? Does it speak of God's judgment? Indeed. But it screams at least as loud and many fold more of His grace and mercy to us as well. So this message is declared. We saw as well today that we've got to receive it. That there is a receiving in our part. We can't add to it. We can't produce it. But we've got to embrace it in our lives. And even We're called to embrace it on a regular basis, as we said, as we put things in our place in our lives to help us remember the beauty of the gospel. Let's not run down the road looking for 20 other things. Let's not run down the road looking for new spiritual gadgets. Let's not toss the atonement aside because it's a little bit rough or doesn't sit with our uh, professional environment around us and people that don't like this idea. It's absolutely crucial that Jesus laid down his life for our sins, that we can receive that sacrifice simply by faith in him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we do praise and rejoice in you for this message that on the one hand ties together the complexities of 
numerous passages and sacrifices and your workings throughout all of the scriptures. And at the same time, Lord, it's such a simple concept. And yet, Lord, we find it so difficult to rest in your work. Lord, we are prone to add to it, or we are prone to think that somehow we're unworthy of it. We can't participate in it, or, Lord, we are just apathetic towards it. Lord, I pray that wherever we are today, you would move us to engage with the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins and the beauty of your passing over us, protecting us from your wrath through him. We rejoice in that today. Transform us by it, we pray. Amen.